This episode of the Leo Podcast is brought to you in part by Suit Your Success. They specialize in creating your personal brand by creating custom tailored suits and offering networking and interview advice. Gentlemen, if you're looking to make a memorable first impression, then a custom suit from Suit Your Success is the way to go. For premium quality, well-fitted suits, visit SuitYourSuccess.com and use gift code LEO to get $50 off your first custom suit today. Tony Demito here, and welcome to another edition of the Legal Entrepreneurs Podcast, where we cater to law students and lawyers interested in the business of law, in starting their own practice, or in simply selling the best version of themselves. My guest today has had extensive experience in starting a law firm, and in helping others do the same. His name is Omar Heredai, and he's the founder of Fleet Street Law, a legal incubator in Toronto that has helped numerous young lawyers start their own practice. Talking points today will include the challenges and rewards of sole practice, the expanding area of health and technology law, and Omar's advice for building their networking skills, among others. Omar joins me now. Omar Haredai, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. I'm looking forward to it. So Omar, you're the founder of Fleet Street Law, a Toronto-based legal incubator. Let's start off with what Fleet Street does and who it helps. So a big part of our focus in terms of Fleet Street Law was young lawyers, usually new calls, who wanted to set up their own practice, legal entrepreneurs. Uh, And so what we would do is provide them with the practice management resources, the mentorship, as well as uh, historically we've had physical space as well, which we would provide them to assist them in getting their practice up and running. And the way that this originated was uh, myself when I first got called to the bar. Um, you know, I looked at some of the opportunities that were out there and they just didn't really appeal to me. They didn't give me the opportunity to have control over the direction of my career or to be involved in the type of work that I wanted to be involved in. And so I realized that I was going to have to become a sole practitioner, but that was terrifying to me. So I rounded up a bunch of my friends. Um, Poulot, as I understand, you guys interviewed <laughs> last week, so he was involved in this early process as well. We rounded a bunch of my friends and I said, look, how can we do this in a way that doesn't attract liability so I'm not getting sued for your mistakes, you're not getting sued for my mistakes, where we don't have to have our finances intermingled. And so we came up with this concept of a legal incubator where we would help each other out. And then once we got up and running, we decided to pass that on and assist other practitioners. And so we've now at this point uh, helped a few dozen lawyers, uh, probably I would say upwards of of 50 lawyers uh, at this point in time, some of them who have left the law entirely, but we've helped them make those decisions early on in their career. Uh, That being said, we've pretty much wrapped up this project and what I'm looking to do is uh, have this model now adopted by any other institution. Uh, So there's a few law schools that have looked at this. I know University of Saskatchewan this month, I believe has a conference where they're looking at our model uh, to see if there's a way to adopt that in Saskatchewan, for example. Mm -hmm. And for myself personally, I'm looking to introduce this to the Ontario Bar Association to actually have the OBA help new calls uh, get up and running. So that's uh, that's one of my main focuses right now. Wow. Um, So, Omar, can you talk a little bit about your background? I mean, I know it's pretty extensive, so maybe we won't have time to talk about everything, but, you know, just, I guess, leading up to where you are now, I guess, 
you know, maybe give us some highlights from, from law school till today? Sure, yeah, I mean, a lot of those experiences happened before law school. So I right. think, you know, I w was not one of those people who always said since the time I was seven years old, I want to be a lawyer. No, you know, I, I never actually thought about being a lawyer uh, well into, you know, my 20s. And, and I think at that point in time, I had a few different experiences worked in a few different careers, different fields, um, in very different areas. So things like nuclear medicine and emergency management and health management. Uh, and, and I think, you know, there's two schools of thought again in terms of should you go to law school straight out of undergrad or should you get some life experiences? And, and I didn't really make that decision. I ended up being the second one of those uh, choices more because it was at only at that point in time that I considered law school. And so I can talk about how that assisted me in my career. Mm was um, in articling and in looking at opportunities in terms of potential jobs, I could compare and differentiate what the legal industry was doing and what other fields and what other industries were doing. And we already know that many of the practices that we do in law are just simply um, uncalled for, unnecessary, and really at times even inhumane. I mean, there's the, you know, the, the, the feeling of having 500 pages dropped on your desk on a Friday afternoon unnecessarily, because it could have been provided to you earlier that week, uh, is soul-crushing. and It actually has an effect on our, our quality of life and our personal relationships. And so there are better ways of doing things. And I realized that, that if the industry wasn't going to actually be adopting the better ways of doing things that society is already adopting, then I have to do it for myself. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's where those experiences prior to law school helped me make those decisions where I could really um, keep focus on work-life balance and the personal relationships that are very important to me in my life. Awesome. Um, so, I mean, a lot of our listeners will be asking, you know, how can I sell myself? They come from diverse backgrounds and I mean, you're pretty diverse. We have a, you know, you've been a, um, you had a clinical career in nuclear medicine in the U.S. Um, you were a hazardous uh, materials respondent and a first responder after, uh, for the 2004 tsunami uh, in Southeast Asia. So um, for the purposes of, you know, inspiring people with diverse backgrounds and even mature students to leverage their strengths and really sell themselves Maybe you can give us an insight into how that sort of background that seems completely remote from law um, sort of shaped your your practice today and, you know, the kind of lawyer that you are today. Certainly. I mean, I think it's um, it's really a choice that all young lawyers have to make is that either you start from scratch, which is often what you're doing when you're going to a larger firm context, and they're telling you what you're going to do. They're telling you the kind of person they want you to be. Uh, so that's one option. It is a career path and, and there's nothing wrong with that career path, especially for individuals who may not know what it is that they want to do. Um, that being said, if you do have other experiences, and I had colleagues in law school who were former police officers or former Mounties or former military people, okay, former entrepreneurs, former bodybuilding competitors and stuff like that. So these different life experiences simply, if you choose, allow you to have other opportunities. Uh, it may not be a direct opportunity. I mean, I'm not necessarily using nuclear medicine in my day-to-day, -day, but my experience in managing, um, you know, positron emission tomography services, pet services, which was in millions of dollars, which required all kinds of logistics and, and planning and scheduling and communications with different parties, 
that administrative background, that management background, if you will, allows me to manage them with the way that I operate and the way that I interact with others all the time. So there's this concept of transferable skills that we see frequently between um, any type of life experiences that you want to do and, and using it in the legal practice. Great. So I want to get into a little bit about the obstacles to starting your own firm and, you know, I've I tend to ask this question a lot out of our guests and you know I, I get different answers but um, I'd like to hear what you have to say about it. It's, you know we, we often hear this this whole idea of you know 80% of businesses fail within the first year and and so on. Sure. Um, and we have here like these highly educated professionals but still it can be difficult and risky so can you maybe I guess expand a bit on what the obstacles are to starting your own firm and you know how uh, the legal incubator that you run sort of tries to alleviate those obstacles. Sure. Uh, I think, you know, obviously the first obstacle would be um, expenses, but as my friend Poulot said yeah. to us when we first graduated law school, all you really need to start a law practice is a computer. Yeah. Exactly. A laptop and a law society ID, right? So I still remember that, that he said that way back then. And, and, and it's, it's generally true. So you can start out like that. You may not be able to pay the bills. And I think that's the bigger concern is that people are saying, well, I have a student debt that I have to pay down. I have my rent I have to pay. So it's not as simple, I think, as just saying, okay, I'm going to have one file and then in 2019, I'll take on two files. It's just not going to pay the bills. Uh, and so what I often suggest for many young lawyers who are entering into an, entrepreneur, an entrepreneurship type of practice, that they do what many investors do in the markets, which is have a mixed portfolio. And so you have high risk investments and you have low risk investments and you have medium risk investments. And I think in our lives, we can do the same thing where we have some aspects of our income that are more stable and predictable and others that are more volatile. Litigation, by its very nature, is volatile. For any litigator will tell you, January and February might be great months. March and April, there's not a single dollar coming in. So you can't really plan for that because it's unpredictable as to when you're going to get settlements and when new files are going to come in. So you need to have a certain amount of cushioning. You need to have a certain amount of stable funding that's coming in from some source or another. And it may even be through investments. So there's some of my colleagues now who are very entrepreneurial. They maintain a legal practice, but they're doing, for example, property management on the side. So they manage, you know, half a dozen properties, uh, multi-residential units, and, and handle the landlord-tenant issues as well. So there's a legal dimension to it. Um, and, and, and it allows them to have a mix of a stable income as well as the, the more cyclical income that can come from a practice. So that's an example of doing that. Okay. Um, very interesting. Um, so, this is, I guess it's connected, but um, we know that law school students tend to be a hard-working, intelligent, and, uh, you know, detail-oriented breed, but, and there's no doubt that these traits sort of will be invaluable throughout their careers, but we often hear of this expression, you know, soft skills or charisma or social intelligence, however you want to describe it. And in short, it's the ability to successfully build relationships and navigate social environments. Um, so how important is this skill, not only for an entrepreneur, but for the lawyer, um, in your opinion and in your experience? I think social skills are 
or emotional intelligence, if you want to phrase it that way, is just important in life. Um, you know, we all develop it to varying extents, and I think the point is that we're not, it's not something that we're born with, so we develop and augment it all the time. I'm not sure that law school necessarily teaches that, and, and I think almost paradoxically, there are some aspects of our profession where people are actual sociopaths. Um, you know, and, and we see this in some aspects of litigation, we see it in some aspects of the big firms as well with the transactional work. They can be very, very competent at what they do, but they are absolutely horrible to work with. They actually don't have the people skills. And for some reason, we've created environments where these type of people can prosper just because they have some of those technical legal skills. Uh, I think they're missing out. The firms that operate in that way are missing out because they're not keeping in mind the additional stress, the impacts of those health on other individuals who have to work with those people, as well as the attrition that we see because people leave these firms simply due to prolonged contact with those types of individuals. So I will say that as important as it is, there is a way that you, for everybody um, to make their way in the legal profession and find a way to be successful. But in terms of the model that I think is most fulfilling and, and allows you to be happy, certainly it's very much about relationships. And I think the biggest challenge that people have in terms of setting out uh, independently as a lawyer is the lack that they don't of social supports. They don't necessarily have the colleagues or the people down the hallway that they can knock on the door and, and ask questions about. And so that certainly is, is a challenge. And, and I think one of the main solutions that I propose for that are the professional organizations, and I've been a huge proponent of that. The OBA is, is simply the largest organization that we have in Ontario, um, and because of its size, it probably does have the, the most amount of resources that are available for those who are looking to utilize it. And uh, so I'm a strong proponent of, of being involved in those types of things because it'll provide and supplement in many ways uh, those social supports. And I think I can say that, that I, I have never... Um, had a question or a challenge in practice where I couldn't pick up the phone and call someone uh, simply because the more that I was involved in volunteer or social types of activities within the legal community, the more people were willing to invest in my career. And so it was always a two-way relationship. Um, and, and I think I'm very fortunate to have the people who have invested in me in, mm -hmm. you know, over the years. And I, and I hope to do the same for the future generations of lawyers as well. Right. And Omar, I know you fought very hard to keep the uh, students, their OBA membership uh we have a free membership with the oba um so listeners you know there's no excuse here that's funny it's i'm not sure how you knew about that but yes uh when i was on the student division executive the oba initially had a three-year pilot project uh for free oba memberships and that pilot project was going to expire um, and so on the student division you know we, we really did fight for it we said look the students are the future of the oba um and, and, and if we don't keep this free, we risk not engaging them. So it's something that I think we need to do more of. But you're right, for a free membership, I can't imagine why every law student doesn't uh, sign up for the OBA and, and right. you know, use it to whatever extent it's useful for them to use. So, I mean, I guess I'm teasing some law students here, but, you know, there's some that are just, I guess, uh, introverts, right? They're sure. skilled at certain objects, uh, certain things. And, you know, I guess being social is just not something very that they're very comfortable with um so you know for uh, i know many people who who are natural born introverts but the they still have that social element to their lives and they're very good at it um so would you have any advice to those um of our listeners um yeah I, I don't know if you were a natural born 
introvert. I actually am. That's why I'm laughing okay. a little bit here because nobody <laughs> believes me when I say this. Yeah. I am actually an introvert. And so the psychological definition of an introvert is someone who actually likes to be by themselves. And I am, a, as much as I am incredibly social and I go to tons and tons of events and people see me all across town, uh, at the end of the day, I really enjoy my solitude. It's, it's when I'm by myself that I'm able to reflect on things. I often come up you know, with solutions uh, to legal problems simply by you know, being by myself and going for a long walk. Um, and that's really what it means to be an introvert. An introvert is not necessarily shy or uncomfortable right. in social circumstances. Okay? That being said, I can think, of ver think back very, very clearly uh, to my early 20s, which wasn't that long ago, when I was in nuclear medicine. And, and going to a, a business event and being absolutely terrified. And, and I think that fear more came about from a lack of confidence in terms of my own self-worth. I, I looked around the room and I saw all these people who were business executives and I said, suits. they're so, exactly, suits. And, and I'm like, I'm not important. Who am I? I'm, I'm nobody. Why am I in this room? Why would anybody want to talk to me? Uh, and I think that's where the fear that most people are feeling comes from. And, and, and what I would say is that Every single one of us feels that, but also every single one of us is important. And the way to actually bridge that from my perspective is that most lawyers in particular like to talk about their careers, like to talk about their professions. That's what we're doing here. And so if you act interested and genuinely interested mm -hmm. in the careers and the insights and the perspectives of other practitioners, they're more than happy to talk to you. Uh, and, and so that in itself creates a bridge and allows you to actually have those conversations. And all you need to do is simply walk up to them and say hi. Uh, and in my experience, 90% of the, the members of the profession are more than happy to have those conversations. Um, I think the volunteer-based organizations, simply because of their nature, they're attracting people who like to give their time, they're not mm -hmm. getting money from these billables, right. are more likely to invest that time as well. Uh, because we recognize that this isn't just a job, okay, as much as uh, being a lawyer is a business and we should treat it like a business, an efficient business and all of those other components. It's more than just a business. This is a profession. It's a profession that's related to our role in a society and in particular in a democracy, the very important role that the judiciary plays. And so for that reason, we do recognize, those of us that emphasize those qualities, the need to actually have this collegiality in the profession and to do this type of informal mentoring all the time. I mean, this is the way that I see this podcast, actually, mm -hmm. is that you're actually creating these conversations with different members of the bar, and, and this is the best part about it, you're then sharing it with mm -hmm. other individuals. So I see this as an invaluable resource, and, and hopefully more law students can actually tap into this to actually get those perspectives, because guess what? Uh, there's the, the hard letter law that you learn in law school, you have all of your life to pick up another book and review a statute or review a case law if you need to. Okay, that, those books are always going to be there. Those cases are always going to be there, and there'll be new cases. But the information about how the legal industry works, okay, the social aspects of the legal industry, how do you build your career, there's no books on this, and unfortunately there's no actual courses on this as well in law school really in the way that we would like. So how do you get that information? Well, most people, they get it over time. So 10 years, 15 years, working in a firm, and people turn around and say, nobody told me I have to buy into a partnership, okay? What do you mean I have to pay money into this pyramid scheme, which is kind of what many of them are? I don't know anything about the financial fundamentals of this firm that I've been mm -hmm. working at for the last 10 years. Now you're telling me I'm a partner, but I have to go back to the bank, take another loan to pay into this partnership 
and I don't even know if it's a viable model or a good model. Okay, um, and nobody tells you that because there's no, those conversations aren't happening in law school. They're definitely not happening in the firm. Okay, so these are the conversations that I think all law students need to be ha having and thinking and reflecting about what it is that they want to do. I'm not saying that model isn't a good one for the people who want to do it. Mm. What I am saying is that it's not the model for everybody. Wow, so lot to lot to unpack there, and uh, I love your candidness, and uh, thanks for uh, commenting on the podcast, and hopefully we'll have many more uh, many more uh, conversations like this for our listeners to hear. Um, so we've talked about the challenges. Now I want to get into the rewards a bit. And I ask almost every um, sole practitioner this question. And, you know, I, I, I tend to get different answers, but, you know, we, see, we start to see patterns a bit. What's your favorite part about working for yourself? And what's your favorite part of your work in general? Well, there's a few things here. I can start with the professional aspects, and, and, and I think the best part of that is that I can say no, uh, and I do say no frequently. Okay? I think our last, I think our last, Mike Cook, uh, he was on the podcast. I think he said that exact phrase. And, wow, okay. So, you know, Some I mean, major you're, patterns here. Yeah, well, I think that you're going to see those patterns there yeah. without question, because in a firm context, you're provided a file as an associate. Guess what? You can't say, I don't like this client, or this file isn't interesting enough. Or, or, you know, I just have too much work. You can't say yeah. that. So the control, which you only really get in terms of other contexts, once you make partner, and even then you don't have full control because you have to answer to the other partners in terms of your billings and how much business you're bringing in. But the absolute control that you have in sole practice is what makes it the best thing in the world. Okay, And it's not just the control in itself. Yes, that allows you to pick the files that you want. It allows you to work as much as you want. Take time off when you need to. It's what that allows you to do. And I think... Um, millennials in particular, which I'll still include myself in, have, from my perspective, the right approach. As much as millennials are, you know, they're, they're bashed in the media everywhere, I actually think that they realize that, you know, working for a company for 30, 40, 50 years, and then they fire you, because this is what's happening with, you know, in, in society generally, and nobody thinks twice. Or, you know, you're working in a law firm your entire life, you drop dead out of a heart attack, and the very next day, there's an ad in the ORs for, you know, to, for your position, right? Nobody's actually that invested in you on an emotional level mm -hmm. in your professional career. So what is important in life? And I think that's the reflections that we have to have, at least for myself, you know, my, my married life, I haven't been married long, but, uh, you know, my wife and spending time with her is by far an absolute priority. And I said this before, but the relationships in my life is what gives my life meaning. Law is without question. I'm very, I'm almost geeky. I'll admit that. I'm geeky about the law. I like reading case law. I like thinking about the law. Uh, and it's fun for me. And I think that's the way it should be. Uh, but as much as I enjoy that aspect of the law, the law is not my life. The law doesn't define my life. And I think this is something that millennials have put their finger on, that there is more to life than just work. And that's what being a sole practitioner allows me to do. It allows me to have a life outside mm -hmm. of law. And that... I, I expect would allow you to give more of yourself to your clients, right? Because if you're burnt out and stressed out, then that's a bit of a disservice. Theoretically, theoretically. And so you have to be careful here because there's many sole practitioners who yeah. do get overburdened. They're right. picking on every single file. They don't learn to say no, and they're trying to create volume. And a right. big part of that is because they have overheads. So I minimize, my, I go the other direction, minimize my overheads entirely. The less expenses you have, the less you have to work. And you can focus more on than your health and your happiness and your relationships in your life. And that's a better way to do it. Well, 
So, okay, um, let's let's move on to these more, I guess, practice specific sure. questions. Um, so we have a lot of students at Osgood that are interested in health law, um, and your pro practice focuses on health law, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that that's includes, part of it. Yeah, that includes personal injury, medical malpractice, and occupational health and safety. Um, so, do you see any developments in this field? And what advice would you give to students who wish to practice in health law? So I think the challenge here with health law is that it, in itself, it's an interdisciplinary practice. Um, and it also spans across many different areas of law. So when I talk about health law, uh, it includes things like the, the healthcare practitioner. So these are actual files you know, that I might have. The healthcare practitioner who's been charged criminally for something they did in the job. And so there's regulatory proceedings, but there's criminal law as well. So guess what? On Monday, I'm a criminal lawyer. On Tuesday, I might be dealing with a family law matter where the parents are fighting over the medical issues of their child. But they've hired me because I understand the healthcare aspects of this, and that is the main issue at stake. Okay? So obviously, criminal procedure on Monday, family law rules on Tuesday. On Wednesday, it's a civil matter. Okay? And so it's the rules of civil procedure. So there's inherently a challenge there in that you actually have to develop a deep area of knowledge across many different areas of law. But I think what gives me the value added to the clients that I do take on is that I do have an extensive background in healthcare, um, more so than I would say the average practitioner who might be taking on files like this, and that allows me to service them a little bit better. Uh, so I think this is part of the challenge. The health yeah. law itself is very nebulous and it covers many, many different areas, uh, and there's no precise definition for it. So what I, what I see is like when you actually have firms that, are, um, that have a health law group, Okay, it's actually a corporate law group, for example, focusing on the health law sector. Okay. Okay. Or if you look at some of the litigation boutiques that have a health law group, it's really like, let's say, regulatory law or administrative law, but they're focusing on the regulatory colleges that service the health industry. Okay. And so I, the way I see it is really health law is more of a topic, if you will, less than it is a practice specific area. Uh, which is a, it's a pro, but it also can be a challenge for people saying, I want to do health law. Well, right. what exactly are you talking about there? Um, what I do find is that people who are interested in health law. There is this body of knowledge or this body of information that we all share an interest in, and that gives us some grounds for communication. What I'd also say is that with the baby boomer population, so this is demographics, right? With the baby boomer population getting older, health issues are just going to increase. We have 50% of our provincial budget in Toronto, pretty much goes towards healthcare. So as part of our economy, health just generally is such a huge part of what we do. And so whether you're dealing with the corporate aspects of it, or the litigation aspects of it, or the regulatory aspects of it, or even just, you know, I see some people defining health law as a state's litigation, okay, or fertility laws, another area within health law we're seeing emerging. Mm -hmm. However you want to define it, there are so many aspects or facets within health care or health law simply because it's such a big part of what our society does. And it seems like, correct me if I'm wrong, it's a nice way to, mer like for a lot of our listeners who have this science background, um, it's it might be a good opportunity to marry that interest in science or um, health with, you know, their, their study of law. It can be, certainly. I mean, I think this is where on some of these uh, types of files that I've described, right? A lawyer on the other side is trying to make an argument, and I just shake my head because they don't have, they just don't have the scientific background. So the challenge there is then I still have to bring in expert evidence, 
but at least I already am halfway there in terms of knowing which experts to get or when the expert evidence is appropriate for a particular file. Uh, so I think it can give you an edge or, or an advantage in terms of practice. Great. So next topic is I want to ask you about how law is changing um, with technology, how technology essentially is affecting that change. So I know you, uh, you run a paperless office and you've also, in one of your articles on uh, S-Law, I believe, right? Slaw. Yeah, on S-Law, yeah. You, yeah. Um, you interviewed and you spent some time with the Suskins who wrote oh, yeah. a number of books. Yep. Um, tomorrow's lawyers um, being one of them. So what technological changes have you witnessed and what changes do you think lie in store for the next generation of lawyers? Yeah, I love technology. I mean, I think that's, you know, I, I, health law is a part of it. I do technology law as well as part okay. of my practice. So this is like, and it's, how do you define that, right? Yeah. That's a different question. Um, but I love the technology because, especially for young lawyers, it gives us an opportunity to be competitive uh, and, and lean, okay? So we have less expenses and have a competitive advantage against larger firms, and I do it all the time. Okay, so me, a sole practitioner with minimal infrastructure and resources, I can routinely go up against larger firms and do it successfully. Uh, so that's what I love about the technology. It's, it's really a competitive edge. Uh, how has it changed practice? Well, I don't think it's going to revolutionize practice overnight. I think that's probably misleading. So a lot of the people say, oh, yeah, it's all done. We're all going to be out of jobs. The robots are going to take over. Mm. Maybe, but over like a 50 or 60 year time span, okay? Change will happen slowly and gradually and we'll have an opportunity to adapt. All of us will. My question is, do you want to wait for the change to happen and then adapt? Or would you rather adopt the tools that gives you a competitive advantage at the outset? And that's the way that I'm looking at it. Uh, one of the things that we're really trying to struggle with or work with right now, and this is everywhere in the news, is this whole concept of artificial intelligence and machine learning and how is it going to change the practice of law. And I think what we're going to see is more clients will use tools that are probably developed by lawyers or lawyers in conjunction with software engineers to, to actually manage the risks of their business by themselves. Okay, so the lawyer might be developing the tool. The business is saying, well, I don't need the physical lawyer anymore as much because I'm reducing or minimizing my risks. That just means that they're making better business decisions. That's not a bad thing, okay? It's not going to remove the need of lawyers entirely because there's going to be that 10% cases where they still need a lawyer to come in for a complicated issue. So the way I look at this is, it means all of those files which have really, really routine and boring and redundant types of facts are going to be automated. That's a good thing. Give me the interesting, complicated facts where they actually need someone to have a creative solution and that's where I can help them out. The other way that technology, especially in this context, might help is that if I am using as a lawyer artificial intelligence or machine learning or some of these tools that are now coming onto the market, uh, it allows me to have the power right here, okay, of let's say 10 or 20 lawyers because that's what the tool is doing. And yes, mm -hmm. there's a cost associated with it, but the computing technology is doing much more than what 10 associates could do in a large firm. That's only an advantage for an entrepreneur and that gives you that ability to go up and be competitive and provide better services to your clients than even some of those larger firms can do. Interesting. Okay. Um, so let's get into, you know, into the law school. Um, you wrote an article on your, uh, on your website, Law is Cool, and it's called, 
I think it was it might have been a few years ago entitled um, the struggle is real and we we want to get into I guess you know with the diminishing law jobs that we see now and the growing influx of law students um, we see the uh, I think a lot of law students um, with anxiety and really having trouble pinning down their you know, the career path that they want to follow um, and some are even in the process of deciding whether law is right for them entirely so what advice would you give to to those students because I, I think there might be a, a lack of mentorship in the, in the law school and maybe you can um, you know give your advice on that yeah it might seem trite uh, to say this, but I mean, people say it and it's kind of true. It all works out in the end and it really does. Um, that doesn't help you though when you're struggling right. to try to find the answer, okay? Uh, I think we do need to have more supports. We need to have more supports, not only within the law schools, but also practicing lawyers coming in and saying, here's the way that you can actually do it and providing a navigation. Uh, but we can also employ many of the things that are used, for example, in cognitive behavioral therapy um, and mindfulness. To, to focus on the now. You don't need to necessarily figure out what you're going to be doing 10 years from now. Okay? There is so much that might change in the market, not only in terms of how we're doing law, but how the law society is regulating it, the technological changes, market changes, okay? That to plan out 10 years in advance um, is sometimes very counterproductive. You're not using your energies in the right way. And so instead, I would say, look at the opportunities that are there right now, live in the moment, and try to navigate yourself in terms of where you're going. And in fact, that should not be something that's motivated by, from a stressful perspective or, or um, an anxious perspective. It should be enjoyable to explore the options. That's kind of the fun thing here. We actually have options. Sometimes people say too many options, and that's true. Okay? But there is some freedom in knowing that we have different choices ahead of us, and that whatever choice we take, there will be rewards there. there. There's going to be some advantages there if we put the time and effort into it. Wow, that's great, Omar. So where can law students and lawyers find, find out more about your work and uh, you know, your research? Yeah, I mean, I write a lot online, and I think that's the beauty of, of doing things like podcasts is we're trying to share the information. We're trying to extend conversations. That's really what all of these tools are about, uh, as, as I alluded to earlier. Uh, and so, you know, people are more than welcome to, to read any of those things that are there. But at the end of the day, I see those as just augmenting mm -hmm. our real relationships. At the end of the day, it has to come down to real relationships. And that's a face-to-face. -face. And, and I've said this many times before to, to audiences of, of sometimes hundreds of students, that uh, for people who actually want to meet with me and spend, you know, five minutes, ten minutes, okay, with me, I will make the effort. It might be a difficult to do it in terms of scheduling and stuff like that, but I will find a way to meet with anyone who does want to meet with me, at least so I can assist them a little bit and maybe point them in the right direction, connect them with another lawyer who might be able to assist them more, right. uh, or sometimes just be a sounding board. Okay, mm -hmm. And I think that's something we all have to do. Uh, we can make five minutes or ten minutes in our day. It might not be today, but we can find that time to have those relationships with everyone. And I think that's a commitment that I'm going to try to continue uh, regardless as long as I can in my career for anyone who's in law school or who's a lawyer. That's something that we simply should be doing. Omar, thanks for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure. It was a pleasure uh, to be on your show. Thank you very much. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Legal Entrepreneurs Podcast. You can find more about Omar and his work on SLAW and the Law is Cool websites. If you enjoyed the podcast and got something out of it, 
I'd appreciate if you left a review on iTunes, SoundCloud, or LinkedIn. Please share the show with a friend or colleague who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Tony Domino telling you to dare to roll.